and they said, you're right, it's Lyme. They gave me three weeks of doxycycline and told me that I would be fine. I was feeling something and I was questioning them. They really dismissed me um, and they told me not to Google it. And um, you know, you're not gonna be one of those crazy Lyme people. Completely a way to gaslight a patient who is literally dying before your eyes and discouraging me from exploring appropriate care, which is exactly what I ended up luckily doing. But by the time I did, I was in heart failure. Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the US, killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, remediescounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error, chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Medicine is so messed up, it has been fatally bitten by its own dogma. Hello humanity, I'm Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews. When singer-songwriter Dana Parrish suddenly got very sick, she quickly had a correct diagnosis of Lyme disease and was given the standard antibiotic treatment. But Dana never fully recovered and eventually ended up in heart failure. Dana saw many top doctors in New York and they all missed the ongoing underlying infection that would lead to Dana's heart failure. None of these physicians could wrap their heads around the idea that Dana had been undertreated for Lyme disease and it was causing her impending death. Like other medically marginalized and discriminated diseases, chronic Lyme infection has been maligned and neglected by the very system that purports to provide medical care. This reflects the heart of the problem with our healthcare, entrenched discriminatory dogma in a closed system. Eventually, Dana found Dr. Stephen Phillips, who was already an internationally renowned physician specializing in complex chronic diseases when he became a patient himself. After nearly dying from his own mystery illness, he experienced firsthand the medical community's ignorance about the pathogens that underlie a deep spectrum of serious conditions. From fibromyalgia, multiple sclerosis and myalgic encephalomyelitis to depression, anxiety, OCD, and neurodegenerative disorders. In their book, Chronic, The Hidden Cause of the Autoimmune Pandemic, Dana and Dr. Phillips explore the science behind common infections that are difficult to diagnose and treat and debunk widely held false belief by doctors that keep patients chronically sick. 
with the COVID pandemic still going parabolic and the number of long COVID patients with chronic autoimmune symptoms also skyrocketing, their book could not be more timely. If you'd like to support the podcast, hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and all of the major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Just go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. And if you need the support of an experienced counselor for dealing with medical error and or living with complex chronic illnesses, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Now, here's my interview with Dana Parrish and a word of warning as always that some people may be triggered by Dana's experiences with the healthcare system. Thanks, Dana. So my first question to all of my guests is, where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? Uh, I grew up in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, which is a few miles outside of Philadelphia, where my parents were born and raised. I was born in Philadelphia. My childhood was like a very typical, um, in some ways, very typical suburban, idyllic childhood. I have a uh, notoriously crazy, hilarious Jewish mother. And my father is a CPA. My parents still live in the house that I grew up with, that I grew up in. Um, I have a brother who, an older brother, who I'm super close to, um, who lives in Manhattan now. And uh, we're eight years apart. He was a much older brother in some ways and taught me lots of uh, great music when I was little and taught me uh, how to curse and all the things big brothers do. <laughs> and so what happened to your life as you got into adulthood? I see in the background a piano and some microphones. Yes, so I was, um, when I was, uh, I was really born to sing and to write. I mean, that was really, truly the first conscious thought I can remember. Um, I was always um, memorizing songs and, and stuff when I was like super, super young, like four or five years old, three, four or five years old, and always telling uh, my family, like, I'm going to be a singer. And eventually, and I was writing all the time, but I didn't really understand I didn't quite put it together when I was really young that you could write your own songs and sing your own songs. I just knew like that I loved certain songs. They made me feel connected to the world. They made me feel understood. Although I did have a very um, somewhat like tr traditional suburban childhood, I was also uh, a really uh, heavy thinker. I was a kid that always wanted to understand things in a deeper way. I was observant. Um, I was very keyed into people's emotions and to their interactions. And I would have like very deep intuitions about things that were sort of wild when you thought about them, but a lot of them ended up being true. And so I ended up feeling like I have to sort of channel this because it was kind of an overwhelming thing uh, for me as a child. And sometimes actually it really still is to feel this like deeply rooted to the earth sense where you're feeling everybody's pain, you're feeling everybody's everything and you, got, you have to find like a way to protect yourself. And for me, it was like 
moving it out of myself, if that makes any sense. I've never really talked about, and nobody ever really asks me these questions anymore because I'm not uh, making records right now. That's, you know, that's kind of like what it was like for me was, was I just always had something I wanted to share. Like I felt like I would pick up knowledge and I would pick up things from the world that I was watching. And I wanted to tell people, oh my God, you got to know about this thing. You have to hear this story. You can't believe this breakup. You can't believe this incredible, serendipitous, happy coincidence, whatever it was. So I started to sing when I was really young. I started to study um, voice by the time I was like 10 or 11. And I had a teacher that really changed my life, Paul Adkins, who's still very close. Uh, he's like, I don't know, he's like family to me. And his family is like family to me. And I was studying with him from the time I was about 12 years old onward. And at, at 14, so I was studying classically, but I really didn't want to be a classical singer. So he would let me bring in, I loved gospel music. I was from like Philly-ish, you know? So I was listening to all this Motown and all this soul music. And I just related deeply to those singers and to that music. So I would say, well, I'll do that aria if you let me do this Stevie Wonder song or this Yolanda Adams song, whatever it was. He said, yes, and he really encouraged me. And I would come in sometimes and complain, well, I would never say this in a song. So like, I love this song, but I need to give you this caveat that like the second verse, mm -mm, like totally don't relate to that. Totally not my bag. And at some point he just looked at me, he's like, if you're gonna keep complaining, write your own songs. Never occurred to me. I went home, I wrote my first song. He came to the studio with me, sang back up for me. He had a friend that was a producer uh, and a songwriter too. So he'd like put together all the music for me, but I wrote the lyric and melody by myself. And I recorded my first song at like 14 called Only You and Me about my boyfriend, my first boyfriend. So that's, <laughs> that's my story. And, uh, and then as I got older, you know, I knew I was going to go to conservatory and I, I wanted to go to college and really um, be around musicians. Um, my parents probably would have rather me done something else and I don't blame them. It's a very tough business and it's gotten tougher and tougher um, as, as time has gone on. But um, I went to college uh, in Boston to New England Conservatory of Music. I transferred to Manhattan School of Music because I wanted to live in New York and I wanted to actually really start engaging in the music business in the pop world, which was really centered in New York and LA um, at that time. Uh, I got out of college and I did, you know, gigs for a couple of years, sang at weddings, sang at events, um, everything I could do to sort of make ends meet as a young um, New York City person. And then I got my first publishing deal with Paramount. Um, very soon after. So I was very, very lucky. I'd still been writing, 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 performing, getting my stuff out there. And I, I read a book in college in, in my uh, business of music class by this attorney who uh, is now retired. He was wonderful named Alan Siegel. He, managed, he, he represented all these really amazing artists. And I was in awe of all his knowledge and, and all of the talent that he was representing. And I told my dad like, God, I wish I could get to this guy. And he's like, well, pick up the phone and call him. And that's what I did. I literally, as like a 21 year old kid, picked up the phone and asked for him. 
he got on the phone and said like, what do you want kid? Like I get 400 demos a week. And I was like, well, I promise if you listen to my music, you're gonna fall in love with it and we're gonna do big things together. That is a true story. That really did happen. And I got my first publishing deal a couple of years after that. And that was the start of my music career. Wow. So I, I, I'll have to admit that I am very envious of people who from a very early age, or like you say, from your first consciousness, knew what your destiny was, knew what your passion was. Um, and it really sounds like you, you followed it. So here you are, you're following your path, you're doing really well at a young age. But we're talking about how your health intersects with your passion. So when did that happen? Yeah. Well, it's interesting to hear you say like you knew what your mission was. I, I did and then I didn't, right? I mean, it changed so drastically. And I know you totally relate to this. Um, when you have something, when you have a life altering, life threatening in my case, um, illness or incident, it just completely derailed, like nothing seems important anymore that you used to worry about. That's for sure. Certainly writing another pop song for another, you know, look, it, a lot of the artists that I was privileged to work with are amazing. You kind of do that and then you're like, I've done that thing. I don't really need to write another song and think about how so-and-so feels in the morning when they wake up. Because at this point, I just need to stay alive. So, uh, so fast forward, you know, I had, I, I was, you know, singing, I was writing. Um, I eventually signed, uh, went from Paramount, who was uh, bought by Sony, to a new deal with Sony, which was super wonderful and super exciting. And when did that happen? At the exact same time my health crisis happened. Um, so I had just written songs for Celine Dion. Um, I was about to work on an album with Indina Menzel and Leah Michelle, and I had all these great things happening. I was super, super excited. And uh, July, 4th, July 4th weekend of 2014, I was at a close friend's wedding in New Jersey on Long Beach Island. Um, I didn't hike. Uh, there was no grass. It's, I don't know if, if people have ever been there. It's a very, it's just like a beach and a bay and you don't even really need a car depending on where you stay. So I didn't go anywhere. I must've been in my sleep. I got a tick bite. And uh, I came back to New York City like two days later with a crushing head and neck ache. Uh, nothing like I've ever had before. Did you have that uh, telltale symptom of the bullseye rash? Not yet. What oh. happened was I got home and I didn't see anything, but I felt in the middle of summer, like I had the worst flu of my life. Now, I just want to point out that if you have a really bad flu in the summer, it is probably Lyme. So that's a big, big tip. I wish I knew that. The flu really doesn't go around in the summer very often. So let's just leave it at that. Um, so I got back. I had a couple of days of this like crushing head and neck ache and this deep coma-like sleep. It was very significant and very bizarre. And I, I almost felt like I couldn't wake up. I can't explain it. It was really horrifying. And then my sat that was like Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, I wake up and I have a little bite mark and a round faint rash, not the classic bullseye. And I've later learned that there, there are um, probably way more, more atypical bullseye rashes or, or 
rashes than there are the typical ones that you see on the CDC website and on various other um, websites. So I immediately knew that I had Lyme and I walked over, I know I was living in Manhattan and I walked over a couple of blocks to an emergency, uh, whatever walk-in place. And they said, you're right, it's Lyme. They gave me three weeks of doxycycline and told me that I would be fine. And I had an ominous sense about it. Again, like my life has really been guided by my instincts more than anything and by like this inner voice. And I have really, for the most part, I listen to it. Uh, when I don't, I always regret it. So at this point, I was hearing something. I was feeling something and I was questioning them. They really dismissed me. Um, and they told me not to Google it. And um, you know, you're not gonna be one of those crazy Lyme people. I didn't know that there was such thing as a crazy Lyme person. And of course that concerned me, but I felt very helpless. This was the maximum they were gonna do. And then I called my own doctor. That was the guideline. So it wasn't negotiable at that point. Uh, basically I took the three weeks of doxy, the initial flu-like symptoms, they generally go away for anybody anyway, whether they're treated or not. So they went away from me. So I didn't really understand that what could happen down the road would be, you know, strongly related to that bite. I just didn't know. Um, somebody tried to tell me, uh, a friend of a friend tried to intervene and get me to take more antibiotics early and I just didn't get it and I couldn't get them. So I was like, I'm fine, I'm fine. People, so now like thousands of people have said this to me and I'm the one, I'm her, her, friend, her name is Katie. She's a really good friend of mine. And I've uh, since made good on my promise that if I ever got well, I would share this story a billion times so that I could pay forward the gifts that she gave me actually throughout this whole experience, including first raising the alarm. And it was my fault that I didn't listen. So I, I took the three weeks of doxy, you know, I felt moderately better. My brother got married in August. I remember being a little bit off at his wedding. There are pictures of me and I look a little bit unwell, but still kind of, they keep, I keep looking on the CDC website and it says like, there's a post Lyme disease syndrome that takes a few months to recover from. I had nothing else to go on. And that was what my doctors were saying. So, okay, maybe this is true. Didn't feel right, but maybe it's true. So then all hell broke loose about October. Um, I woke up and my uh, breast was swollen and all like my tissue um, like right here was all changed. It was hard. It felt like little beads under my skin. Uh, my grandmother died from a very aggressive breast cancer um, when she was very young. Um, she got it in her early forties. Uh, there's, there's a history in my family that I've you know always been in, uh, aware of the possibility that I could be at higher risk. So went to my doctor, she saw it. She said, it is really weird and I don't know what it's from. And she sent me to an oncologist that day at Mount Sinai who was this wonderful doctor um, who immediately you know, said to me, all I can tell you for sure is it is not cancer. That's my job is to rule out cancer. It's not cancer. I don't really know what it is. Uh, it could be hormonal was not, it didn't make sense to me. Could be that you ate too much soy. I don't eat a lot of soy, but he sent me on my way. And that began the journey to 11, you know, top New York city doctors, um, lots of the big hospitals that um, are in New York city that um, 
I have a lot of admiration and respect for, um, in a general sense, um, really failed me. You know, I just kept getting more and more symptoms. So it started with the breast swelling and, bre and extreme breast pain and tissue changes. But then it evolved into extreme anxiety, overnight anxiety, depression, insomnia, um, suicidal ideation. I can't control my thoughts at all anymore. I, I never had that in my entire life. I kept ruminating about jumping out my window. I lived on the eighth floor. I kept looking at the living room window going like, you can always jump. You know, I didn't wanna think you can always jump, but I couldn't stop thinking you can always jump. It was extremely alarming. Um, I also got uh, OCD. I never really quite understood OCD. Like I used to just think, I have some really close people in my life with it to some, you know, to varying degrees. And I would just like, can't you just stop? You can't you just stop doing that? No. Okay, now I get it. Sorry. You know, I would get up in the middle of dinner and have to remake the bed because it wasn't perfect. I mean, crazy stuff that, you know, my brain was haywire. My brain was on fire. My body was on fire. I had extreme weakness in my limbs. I had extreme fatigue. I have a 28 pound 20 uh, Tibetan terrier dog. I could no longer walk her um, because just her, just the slightest pull, she wanted to go smell a tree. I, I couldn't hold onto the leash anymore. Uh, I could barely lift um, utensils to eat. I'm not exaggerating. My weakness was so profound. And it was actually induced by exercise. It was so weird. There was a little gym in, in my building at that time. And I worked out down there, you know, four or five mornings a week. And I generally did the same moderately strenuous to low strenuous exercise. Like I feel crazy, like I can't breathe. Uh, I can't be subjected to light or sound anymore. I remember going to the Apple store to exchange a, an iPhone. I had got, gotten a, a, an iPhone that I cracked. So I went to go get a new one. And you know, the Apple stores are, are especially the one in, in Manhattan where I went in the meatpacking is bright. It's all windows, like floor to ceiling. So I'm in there, I'm wearing glasses. It's very cold. At the time, I guess I was probably like November, December, sort of toward the end of me um, not knowing what was going on. I almost passed out and they actually had to lay me down like in a window. It was like a super low point. And I said, I, 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 have, I, I kept telling them I have a brain infection. I didn't even know what I had, but I like, I didn't really, it just came out. I have a brain infection, I need help. They laid me down in a window. They were so nice. They gave me 10% off of my phone. Um, <laughs> <out> of and <laughs> I, but, but one thing I, I didn't say is I kept going to doctors and saying, could this still be from Lyme? And they all kept saying no, including three infectious disease doctors. So I didn't believe them. And I kept bringing up things that they could do to test. Like, could you test this? Could, I was reading now, by now I was reading and I was reading similar stories. And I was really concerned because I was seeing so many people who never got better, never got help. One of the docs, some, some doctors said to me, you could go to like a Lyme doctor. There is one named Joe Boriscano. Uh, he's really good. You could try to go to a Lyme doctor. Okay. So I asked and I, I, I looked him up. He had retired. Okay. So I asked an ID doctor completely innocently. I didn't know about all this dogma. Um, I didn't know about all the lying that was going on at the highest levels uh, at this point. No clue. I said, what about this, this, these Lyme doctors, you know, your infectious disease, but it seems like they've super specialized in these tick-borne diseases. Uh, maybe I should do that. And he literally told me that they're quacks. 
And it's like a word that repels me because when anybody ever says that, I am very suspicious. When I, I now like kind of know the buzzwords, you know, quack, quackery, anti-science, you know, what are you talking about? That is completely, completely a way to gaslight a patient who is literally dying before your eyes and discouraging me from exploring appropriate care, which is exactly what I ended up luckily doing. But by the time I did, I was in heart failure. So when all these months with all these crazy symptoms and by Christmas week, I couldn't breathe. And that was really, really the lowest point. I had, I had flown to California because I was gonna go rest for a couple of weeks. My friend has a farm um, in Santa Inez. I, I went with a couple of friends and I was so weak and so ill and so breathless that I couldn't even get from my bed to the bathroom, my bed to the kitchen. They were gonna take me to the hospital. Nobody really knew what to do. And finally, one of my best friends intervened. She said, you know, my son's doctor knows a lot about Lyme and he's willing to see you this week and come in on a day off. Um, and he's willing to even talk to you on the phone right now. So he, call, he called me, it was so kind of him. Uh, he was in San Diego and he said, you are right. You most likely have Lyme still. Um, and if you can drive the four and a half hours to me, um, I'll see you tomorrow. And he did. And I, I am so indebted. So he gave me the diagnosis, did an incredibly good workup. So one of the big scandals with Lyme is that we don't have a good blood test. And yes, there are labs that are better than others. Um, we like the Stony Brook Western blot. Um, I like Igenics. Um, Stony Brook is often covered by insurance. So I tend to recommend that first. If you get the all bands Western blot, that means it records a broader, it, it has a broader sensitivity. Let's just put it that way to make things simple. Um, that test is more sensitive than the general test that you get at a regular lab. So there's Lyme disease, which is one bacteria, but I understand there may be different uh, bacterias that sort of get clumped under the heading of Lyme. There are, and, and, we, and I, I call them Lyme plus. There are hundreds of strains of Lyme and there's only a test for a few. So there's a lot of strains for which we don't even have a test that you know, you'll never find that answer if you're relying on the test. And then there are other really insidious chronic infections um, like Bartonella, which is known as cat scratch disease. People think it's very mild and self-limiting and in some cases it is, but in some cases it's deadly. I um, mean, in my case, it complicated my Lyme. That's another important thing to say is that all these doctors and I especially blame ID doctors for not looking for other infections that are carried by ticks. There's also Babesia, which is a malaria-like parasite, very commonly also spread by ticks. Ticks are not the only bug that can spread these diseases. Um, there's uh, Bartonella spread by fleas, by spiders, um, lice. So you have to really look for all of them, but it's also, also a clinical diagnosis. In the absence of a positive test and you rule out all other things, you really have to, do some kind of investigation, like give a trial of antibiotics, see if people react. You know, for me, I was very responsive very quickly once I got on the proper treatment. So right after I, I Googled all my symptoms finally, and uh, Joe Barascano, that doctor that retired, had this incredible checklist that's still online. And I think I had like 36 of the 50 or something like that, or 38 of the 50. Uh, symptoms on his checklist. And I was blown away 
And then uh, I came back to New York and I started researching like who would be the best Lyme doctor that was within a couple hundred miles of me. I was really willing to go as far as I needed because now I'm in heart failure. My heart is at 40% ejection fraction. Uh, nobody knows why. Now they really believe me that I'm sick, but nobody knows why. And they're still saying, no, it can't be because of the tick bite. So I finally got to my doctor um, in Wilton, Connecticut, uh, Stephen Phillips, who, you know, he saved my life. He's, you know, he's an incredible doctor. And he knew, you know, to test me for Bartonella. I mean, he knew as soon as I walked in, I think, I think he just has seen this for the last 25 years and tens of thousands of patients. And he kind of uh, also has a very good intuition about what's going on with people. He, my test was positive. I, there was no question I had Lyme because I had the bullseye, you know, I had the rash. So that's diagnostic. You don't need a blood test to tell you that once you have that rash. Okay, well, that is quite the uh, the journey to end up uh, finding a couple of doctors who actually believed you, supported you. So what was it that helped improve your quality of life? Well, the first thing that helped me improve my quality of life was eating a cleaner diet. Actually, you know, I, I used to be able to eat whatever wanted without any consequence that I could feel or was aware of um, within reason. But then I, I, somebody told me to really do like a paleo diet. It was difficult, but I did. It really reduced my pain and weakness to a large degree. Uh, and then I would say that my heart failure, a lot of my neuropsych issues, it took a while. Um, it took um, a rotating course of multiple antimicrobials and antibiotics. Chinese herbs. I did a Chinese herbal protocol called the Zhang protocol. People always ask me about it. So I'll spell it Z-H-A-N-G. I, you know, it, it's one of several herbal protocols in the Lyme world that people like. I don't have a preference. It's just that I lived in New York. They were in New York. I heard that they were good and I could actually go there every week and also get acupuncture and also have them just look at me because I really honestly felt like I was dying and I couldn't, I couldn't get to see Dr. Phillips every, wanted to see him all the time. I sort of like, am I dying or am I okay? You know, and I would really probably see him every month and then two months and then three, you know, as I got well, you know, the, my appointments got really spaced out. But in the beginning, you're so desperate and you're so sick and things have changed. And here I am, I just signed this brand new deal with Sony. I'm supposed to be traveling all over the place. I'm supposed to be writing with superstars or four superstars. And I can't even read a sentence. I'm not exaggerating. I couldn't comprehend a children's book at that time. It's, it's hard to believe because reading and writing has been such a, you know, important part of my life since I've been able to do it. It's, it's crushing. It's crushing to lose control of your mind and to know it's happening. It's, there's nothing like the horror of that free fall. Yeah. yeah, and unless people have been very sick and experienced some of the symptoms that you've described, it's really hard for them to fathom just what that experience is like. And I think what really backs up that statement is the number of doctors we see who have never been sick a day in their life and just cannot believe the patient's report of what's happening physically to their body. And so there's this default of psychosomaticizing everything. It's the most 
offensive, and now I'm seeing it in COVID. I mean, it is the most offensive thing I have ever witnessed, and it's scandalous. My rage about just that was so overwhelming that, you know, earlier we talked about channeling feelings into music or into writing. I was so furious that I, I, I decided like, I, I, I can't live on this earth and keep this a secret. I can no longer put 100% of my attention into music anymore because I have to change this in whatever way I can. So I, somebody offered me uh, the opportunity to write my story for the Huffington Post. I truly did not think anything would happen with it greatly, but I thought maybe 20, 50 people would read it and one or two people might recognize something and it will resonate and it might help them. And that's not at all what happened. That, the, the, it became a column that really took off and millions of people read it. Um, and I got to interview celebrities who had similar stories. Um, Daryl Hall, Chris Christopherson, who had Lyme-induced Alzheimer's and got better when he finally got the right treatment. He also had Lyme-induced fibromyalgia, which I had. I don't like to name syndromes a lot because I want to really make it clear that the syndromes lead us nowhere. They're just descriptors of symptoms. So if you tell me of fibromyalgia, I know how you feel, but I don't know what caused it it was Lyme for me and it's Lyme actually for a lot of people and it's or other infections probably to contribute to these things that we don't know about yet. You know, the, the fact that these organisms and these bacteria are stealth, they hide, they are persistent, they evade the immune system, they evade antibiotics and antimicrobials and the best therapies that we know about right now should be front page news. And unfortunately, you know, it took COVID to be on the world stage and show people what a horrific infection can do to a person. And uh, it's far beyond, you know, death is one thing. Death is horrible. You know, you can die from many, many infections, but, but what is really, really scary to people like me, other than, than death, is the long-term chronic incapacitating illness. And I'm seeing the same thing as I've seen with Lyme, Bartonella, ME, CFS. I think that there's so much uh, chronic illness that it, and autoimmune disease and psychiatric disease and neurologic disease that is driven by underlying stealth pathogens and nobody's talking about it. I mean, now maybe we are. You know, COVID has blown the lid off of things so quickly. And it's really unfortunate that it's taken that all the research we could have done and all the answers we could have had if proper research was done as it's being done now, we're, we're catching up on 30 or 40 years of completely ignoring this giant pandemic of chronic illness driven by infection. It's, it's pathetic. Yeah, it's been, because I, I have ME and it's been very difficult to watch for nine, 10 months now, this pandemic unfold across the world, knowing that a significant portion of the folks with COVID are probably not going to recover. It's going to have long COVID. And to know that that's going to unfold and to know that the medical system is not prepared because they've ignored ME and FM and Lyme for all of these decades. And then to see the gaslighting layered on top of that. And I would say that, especially in Canada, there is no public acknowledgement by any of the health leaders of long COVID, let alone any warning 
about really? long COVID. Yeah. I did not know that. Well, they're very bad with Lyme too in Canada. Yeah. I hear from a ton of Lyme patients in Canada. And it's quite, I mean, believe me, it's horrific in the US. It's, it's horrific all over the world. But I, we're such close neighbors that I do hear, I do hear from a ton of Canadians um, and even physicians there who they're just lost at sea. It's terrible. Yeah. Canada doesn't acknowledge long-term COVID. That is a shock. Yeah, no public acknowledgement at all. No, and I've been listening. So, yeah, I bet. I bet. Paper? Do they crack the Wall Street Journal or the? I mean, really, this is like front page news here. I, I, it's shocking to me. Wow. That's yeah. Yeah. Hard to hear that. So you have this illness, and on top of that, you have a medical system that's not prepared, that doesn't believe. But finally, you you find uh, Doctor Stephen Phillips, who who's helped you, but it caused you to go away from your life's path toward this advocacy around healthcare. So right. tell me more of where that led you. You had the, the column emerged. What else happened? The column emerged, some press, some other press emerged around that um, because when people hear these personal stories, I think they want to put them out there and I really appreciate anytime that happens. So I have to thank you for that right now. And then I started doing a lot of stuff uh, with Dr. Phillips. I mean, I recognized how bogged down he was with patients for the last, certainly since I knew him, but many, many, many years before that. At some point when I was under his care that he had like a two-year waiting list. And I said, this is absolutely crazy. You shouldn't be in your office with all this knowledge and not putting it out into the world. I mean, we have to do something bigger with this so that we can get the message out on a bigger level. He was game for it. And he really wants, like I do, we're, we've just been like aligned in this, in this mission. Since we've known each other, we had like a, a, you know, we met and we're like, okay, let's go, let's do this thing. And we, uh, so we began doing some press together and, and doing some public speaking things, uh, uh, engagements and uh, we're both on the board of, of Bay Area Lyme Foundation, who we love and uh, love because of their incredible mission to support fantastic research. In the midst of, of all of our, of our lives, we got a book deal. And that was not something that we had planned on. That wasn't really necessarily the goal, but it happened. Well, first of all, we're, extreme, you know, we're extremely honored that we got the opportunity to write a book. Um, but what we sort of revel in sometimes is the fact that once we wrote the proposal and we got an agent wrote the proposal we're so used to Lyme being marginalized that we really didn't have confidence that it would be picked up we really didn't know we have an incredible agent who was very confident but we were like yeah but it like it's so hard to explain to somebody that this infectious disease has been politicized to the degree that it has been and it's been marginalized and that patients have been as disenfranchised as they've been. Lo and behold, we we had a five publisher bidding war. And I'm only I'm not saying that to brag because it it, it doesn't it, it it doesn't matter. The thing that matters is that people saw what was going on and they really were upset by it. And every conversation that we had, you know, when this happens, you have conversations with all the publishers that are trying to buy your book. And the reaction was the same across the board. We can't believe this. We had no idea. 
My mother has MS. My father had Alzheimer's early. Um, my child has been bedridden after a tick bite at summer camp for the last two years. You know, one of the things that is really important to say is that uh, Lyme and other underlying infections cause autoimmune disease, not all of it, but they cause a good portion of people that have autoimmune disease, they underlie these autoimmune diseases and these psychiatric diseases and uh, neurologic diseases. So I think it's really, really important to tell patients, get to the root cause. You know, that's the thing. Most people don't ask if I didn't see the bite and see the rash, I'm not sure that I would have ever found the answer. And I'm not sure I would be here right now. That is the truth. So I was given a gift. Uh, I think only 25% of people approximately see a rash and understand very quickly that they have Lyme and are fortunate enough to get treatment at all. So I was lucky that I was in that minority and that I can share this information. Um, and the other thing about getting early treatment is it doesn't necessarily. So I was still undertreated. I was treated within five days of my bite. There's this whole you know, notion uh, put forth by the IDSA and CDC and others that um, if you're treated early, you are cured. That is not necessarily true. It depends on what data you look at. Johns Hopkins has a study that we put in our book that's like 39% go on to have chronic illness. So you have to assume a lot of that is driven by a persistent infection. And uh, Danbury Hospital says 61%. So regardless, it's a lot of people to fall through the cracks, even with early treatment. And I am one of them. Do you think it's a persistent infection or has our body cleared the infection, but the immune system is messed up and that's what's gone wrong? No, I mean, I, I don't, I think that um, a lot of people think that. And I think that a lot of times that it, it really is a persistent chronic infection. I think that in the absence of an underlying cause, your body does not react like this. So I no, it doesn't make it uh, doesn't make sense to me. And and also, and I know it's very common. Also, you know, I, I think we have 50 pages of studies in this book at the end um, footnotes that support chronic infection where there is chronic illness. Again, I am not saying all or nothing, and I don't think anybody should. I think everything should be on the table. Something causes everything, and nothing causes something. You know, like there's nothing, you know, it, it just doesn't work. So somebody who's like myself, who's been sick for many years now, the idea that there's an underlying chronic infection gives me some hope that, oh, well, you know, if I can treat that underlying infection, maybe I can get back to my healthy life. How far back to your health have you gotten? I mean, I feel better now than I did before I got sick. And I felt great before I got sick, but I had little things here and there. I was, when I, since I was little, I've not even ever, I don't think I've ever talked about this before, but um, I do think it's important to share it now. Um, when I was little, like five years old, one of my earliest memories was extreme bladder pain. And they always said that I had bladder infections and sometimes they couldn't culture any bacteria and they would still give me antibiotics and they would help. Well, <laughs> I was diagnosed with a condition called interstitial cystitis. So nobody really, again, idiopathic, when people say idiopathic, it means they don't know where it's coming from. They don't know the cause. A lot of times that ends up being an infection. 
uh, that is like largely unknown and not really taught in medical schools. So I had this chronic condition my whole life and it would wax and wane. I would have good years, bad years, good months, horrible months. I kind of got into a remission state by doing acupuncture in my 20s. My urologist at that point had exhausted all of the traditional horrible bladder treatments where they were injecting uh, cortisone into my bladder every single week. Um, it was barbaric. It worked and it put me in remission for a year and then it came raging back. So, you know, I'm, I'm not a proponent of um, generally of immune suppressants and steroids because that is often what happens, especially when you have an underlying infection like I did, which again, nobody recognized. So um, I started taking the medication for my Lyme under the care of Dr. Phillips. And I had had like 10 pretty good years with my bladder. I didn't even think to mention it to him. And then when you start uh, antibiotics or antimicrobials, when you have Lyme or some kind of treatment that kills the bacteria, you get what's called a Herxheimer reaction. It's somewhat unique. There are some organisms that cause it, but not like strep throat, you don't hear it. You know, there's, there's, you know, a lot of common stuff that you don't hear it with, but Lyme is one of them that you do. It's commonly known that is not controversial to say that. And, and that's uh, very easy to find information about. So I had this Herxheimer reaction, which is an exacerbation of symptoms. Um, as the pathogen is dying, you know, your body becomes more inflamed and until you clear it, you know, until it sort of passes, you feel even worse. Sometimes people also get scared off of treatment because they get worse before they get better. It's totally normal for most people. And that's what happened to me. My bladder flared. So I called Dr. Phillips in a panic. Oh my gosh, what have I done? I'm ruined. My bladder pain is back. I didn't even tell you because I've been in such good shape. I forgot to mention it. And he's like, oh, he was so casual about it. He was like, oh, congratulations. We're going to, you know, we're going to clear your, your probably lifelong infection, you know, this low lying infection in your bladder. And I later learned like there is, there, there, um, there are reports to Lyme, like Lyme loves collagen and collagen is in your bladder. And it's like a really common Lyme symptom. And he was right that it got a lot worse. And then it hasn't made a peep in like five years since I've been treated. So it's kind of interesting that I feel better now than I did before. I mean, in that sense, yeah. I wasn't a sick, I mean, other than that, I was not a sickly person my whole life, but that was a really painful ordeal when it happened. So I would say in, in about a year um, from instituting treatment, um, I started in January, 2015. By June, I was a lot better. I was working with Adina Menzel that summer. And I remember telling her, she's from Long Island. And I, I said, I'm sure you know people that have bad cases of Lyme. She actually did know somebody, a close friend that had it. She was so nice about it. Cause I would, you know, musicians love to work late. She's a night owl. I'm a total night owl too. And so sometimes, you know, you want to start at 6 p.m. and work until two or three in the morning. It was totally normal for me at that time. I had to be basically in bed still by like five or six. So we, she was so nice. It would start at noon. <laughs> it was like very un, uncool, you know, but I had to do it for, for that summer. And uh, I remember by August, I was able to stay up later and to work later and to sort of we feel a little bit more like my old self. By the fall, I felt really good. And, and within, you know, by the end of that year, I think I had pretty much stopped treatment. And I will say, when I feel a flare, 
I will continue, I will treat for a week or two with um, an anti, sometimes it'll just be herbs, sometimes it'll be oil of oregano, and sometimes it'll be a week or two of tetracycline. I've been very fortunate in that it makes me feel better usually pretty quickly. I also first try to rest and eat really well. Okay, important thing about diet. I adhere to the paleo diet um, really um, strictly, basically for about eight months. Um, and every time I tried to stray, I have a corn chip. I'm not kidding. One corn chip could make me feel horrible. My joints would start to hurt. Um, I would get body pain. I would get pain in my muscles. Just crazy. So Dr. Phillips said, look, it's a sign of health when you can start implementing your old foods that you were okay with. Um, and just try a little bit here and there. So I, I had that in my mind all the time. So eventually I could eat a bite of bread, a cracker, these little small, you know, victories, I guess. And I can now eat everything again. I'm not reactive anymore. I think when your body is in this hyper reactive state, everything feels like an assault. Um, and I think until my infection was under control, I could really feel it happening. Once I understood what I had and what was wrong, I could feel myself healing and getting better. And I could feel my this sounds ridiculous, but I could like feel my immune system working again. Like I could, I felt like my body was integrated again. There was a point where I just was like, I've lost all control. It's like on a free fall and I can't save myself. So it took patience. It took a lot of forgiving myself for not being able to do anything. I really had to say no a lot. And I always like to say, yes, I like to show up. I like to be there for other people. I like to give to people and I really couldn't do anything except stay home and rest. And at some point, um, Dr. Zhang said to me, like, when you're tired, rest, that's it. Like no excuses. And then they told me, you know, don't watch anything negative on TV and don't talk to anybody negative. Now that sounds like very, whatever advice you might roll your eyes at, amazing advice, totally helped me. And it gave me permission to do things that I wouldn't have done. They said, watch dumb shows, you know, watch dumb shows, mindless shows, things that have a happy ending, build a house, build a tiny house, build a tree house, whatever, make a rug. Just don't watch the news. Don't watch anything that upsets you. No more crime shows, whatever. It helped. So I'm going to assume that now that you're, you're all better, and you're not having the psychiatric symptoms that you can watch shows that may be emotionally charged because now, now you're better. Oh, totally. Yeah. I can do all the things that, that I used to be able to do. And I, yeah, I mean, all, I, I couldn't even, I mean, at that time really, because I couldn't even read, it was hard to follow a story line on TV. Anyway, just even something happy. I'm like, wait, when did they meet? Oh, like two seconds ago. Yeah. Don't remember that at all. It was really crazy to experience that, but yeah, I can, I can handle it. And I, and I ended up, you know, I take on a lot now because I'm, I'm on, I'm on this mission now to expose the truth of this horrible, terrible, debilitating pandemic that's all over the world. Yeah. And so your book, which we haven't really talked about yet or, or named, uh, tell, tell us more about that called chronic i'm so excited because it's coming out in three weeks which is 
absolutely crazy. We've been working on it for so long. It's called Chronic, The Hidden Cause of the Autoimmune Pandemic and How to Get Healthy Again. So I, I co-authored it with Dr. Phillips, as you know, and uh, we have had quite a remarkable journey interviewing um, experts and patients. And now we just added a COVID chapter. The book was finished. Uh, it got pushed back because the pandemic it was supposed to come out a few months ago and our publisher said, you're going to really put out a book about the global pandemic of autoimmune and psych illness and chronic illness and not include COVID. That's absolutely crazy. And it's, there's so much overlap politically, medically that we, and, and we've been so upset about what's going on um, from the, you know, scandalous you know, you know, like telling people not to wear a mask in, in February when kids were dropping dead in the streets already in China and Iran and other countries were watching this in horror going like, wear a mask. And then everybody's saying, no, no, you don't need them. Nothing's going to happen here. And we're like, so from the beginning, we noticed, oh my God, these similarities, the denials, the gaslighting, we're seeing this happening. Why are you telling me it's not going to come here? Why are you telling us not to protect ourselves from a very airborne virus. It was characterized in February or even late January as being airborne. It's kind of crazy um, what we've witnessed. And, it, and it, you know, I think the, the phrase like weary familiarity comes to mind, but it's, it's, it's been incredibly difficult. And, and now we hear from all uh, many, many Lyme patients who've gotten COVID, who've been hit with this double whammy. And, just, and we hear from patients who, our long haul COVID patients looking for insight into how to handle complex chronic illness of which there are so few people that specialize in that and, and understand it. Like, you know, Dr. Phillips is one of few, you know, in the big picture, even other doctors are calling him from other disciplines saying like, what do we do? It's a nightmare. I'm really worried about these patients. And I do think that there uh, it's going to be, well, I hope it comes to light. The truth of it comes to light. And I think the truth of it will be that many of them do have underlying uh, infections, um, either COVID, or I think that it's, it's, there is evidence that it is activating latent infections. Once we address that, I think people will get better to some degree, at least some of them. I, there's definitely damage with COVID. So I wanna make that clear that I don't think every single person that is not feeling well has an infection. And I also don't think that there's no hope. I think there's a lot of hope. I think this is, there's more hope now than there was before the pandemic. I think you and I talked about that a little even beforehand, like science is moving at a lightning speed to help unravel chronic complex illness, um, multi-systemic illness. So I'm hoping that the lessons that we've learned in Lyme will help long COVID patients too. And, and the lessons that you've learned with ME. I mean, I think we all are sort of in this together and we, we all know like what can happen when chronic illness takes hold of your life. Yeah, in the spring, I, I in addition to the thought of, oh, the horror of all these people are gonna get sick and the medical system's not prepared. I also had the feeling that this was gonna be the best thing that ever happened to ME research and post-viral research. Uh, because you just cannot ignore hundreds of thousands or what's going to turn out to be millions of people that just don't get better. And so, yeah, I concur that, you know, this is going to really trigger the research that has been needed for decades. 
And it, it'll take a week at a time, but as someone who's lived with HIV, I know that when the medical system focuses on a task and gets the money and polit politicians behind them, they can do great things. Yes. And so I, I hope that also happens here. And I hope your book plays a part in instigating that. Thank you so much. And, and, I, and I hope that um, any tendency for researchers at this point or health authorities to use the word post is off the table. They should not be using the word post-COVID syndrome. They should be using long-term COVID, um, ongoing COVID. This is what happened in Lyme. I think this is what happened in ME. I think, I think people were defaulted to a post diagnosis and I don't think it's post in a lot of cases. It's certainly in mine. They were very quick to call me post treatment Lyme disease syndrome. No, it was under treatment. It was mistreatment, but it certainly, and it was chronic and it, and it is chronic. And it's certainly, um, the semantics really hurt the communities. Absolutely, so. for sure. So if folks wanted to connect with you on social media, where can they find you? Uh, on Twitter, they can find me at Dana Parrish. Um, on Instagram, they can find me, I think I'm the Dana Parrish, because I think there were like 3,000. And on Facebook, uh, and on our website, it's The Chronic Book. So you can find Dr. Phillips and I together um, on Facebook, the, the Chronic Book. So again, The Chronic Book. And we're so excited. You're the first person that I've gotten to talk to right before the book came out. And um, I'm so pleased that you are so knowledgeable and so sensitive and so aware. And I just appreciate your questioning and um, your care and concern for this community. Oh, well, thanks. Yeah, I'm so glad we connected. I, I'm honored to be the first one to, to interview you about your book. No doubt you are going to be deluged with media requests to do the same sort of thing. There was something before we started recording, there was something that you wanted to be sure to tell. So the Lyme community asks a lot about the work of our beloved uh, friend, uh, scientist, researcher from Duke, Dr. Neil Spector. And I wanted to let everybody know that his research and the funding of Bay Area Lyme is supporting um, the rest of his research grant that he had applied for. I think it's over $3 million. And there was really deep concern. Unfortunately, he passed away um, in June and he was a huge part of uh, the community. He was a major cancer researcher that after he got Lyme and then lost his heart to Lyme, turned his attention to researching Lyme and Bartonella. So when he passed away, everybody was incredibly concerned that we would lose all of that forward motion that he had. So I just want to let people know that um, it will go on and Neil's legacy will live on really in his brilliant work. And I think it's really going to help. I even think it could be applicable to the COVID long haulers. But at this point, I'm very, very um, heartened about what is going to happen, I think, in the world of Lyme and Bartonella and tick-borne diseases with his work. Yeah, that does sound hopeful. Uh, two final things. Uh, one, I'll put uh, links to all the social media that you listed in the show notes so people can find them. And I'll also put uh, where they can order your book and uh, they can pre-order it now. 
Yes, that would be incredible. Thank you so much. Yeah, they can pre-order it anywhere the books are sold. Um, Barnes and Noble, Books A Million, Amazon, Target, Walmart. Um, I think there are a lot of great independent bookstores that are um, in need of support. So um, they all should be able to get you the book. Yeah, and it's out February, 20th, February 2nd. Awesome. And so where is music in your life now? Well, I still, uh, I'm still signed to Sony and I still um, occasionally write and sing when there's, right now, you know, because of the pandemic, the music business is pretty much on hold. It's, it's difficult to record with people because we're, you know, COVID is so airborne and being in a recording in an airtight recording studio is a really difficult um, place to stay safe right now. Yeah, I mean, I'm still pitching like, I get calls to, you know, say Mercedes is looking for this song for its commercial, like those things I'm still actively engaged in, in terms of like actively writing when something comes my way that's interesting, I will gladly do it. But for the most part right now, things are very quiet in the music and entertainment business. Wow. Well, thanks, Dana, for sharing your experience and especially for all of the advocacy work you've done and all of the work that you're going to do that's related to the book that's coming out. Thank you so much for that. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, a big thanks to Dana for sharing not only her story, but for also producing a book that will have a huge impact on the quality of life of people living with autoimmune illnesses that have been triggered by some sort of underlying chronic infection. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Be kind to yourself, be kind to others. If you'd like to support the podcast, hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and all of the major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Just go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. And if you need the support of an experienced counselor for dealing with medical error and or living with complex chronic illnesses, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com.